Coming up on the Creativity in Motion podcast, a conversation with novelist and educator Marty Chester. I want the idea in my head to be bigger than it is and better than it is. And whatever I've got in the way of that um, is not allowing me to do that. All set? All set. Let's do it. Hi, my name is Chris Hollow. And I'm Mark Mosry. And this is episode number 13 of Creativity in Motion, a podcast about creativity where we talk with creatives of all kinds to find out why they create and especially how they overcome creative obstacles. In this episode, we're talking with educator and novelist Marty Chester about the creative challenges she faces when teaching and when writing her stories. Before we get into our conversation with Marty, we want to tell you about our sponsor, Nosy College of Art. Nosy College opened in 1973 as a fine arts school and has transformed into Tennessee's only private art college. They offer bachelor's degree programs in commercial illustration, graphic design, video and film, and photography. And they also offer a culinary arts associate's degree. They have a beautiful 55,000 square foot facility that was built with the artistic student in mind that includes computer labs, production suites, photography and video studios, and a fully stocked equipment cage. Everything students need to get creative. To learn more about NOSI College of Art, you can visit nosi.edu for degree program details, faculty information, and student work. Today we're talking with author Marty Chester. Marty began writing at an early age in order to entertain herself, but it wasn't until after college that she got serious about writing. Her work developed timeless themes of redemption and second chances, and she started publishing books. Marty, thank you for coming in and sitting down with us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's good to meet you finally. Yeah, it's nice to have um, someone who does what you do, writing, which is near and dear to our hearts. Um, not so much literature or prose or anything like that, but more from the screenwriting standpoint, which is something we want to talk to you about also. But it's great just to get the perspective of someone who is telling stories in a written form and uh, find out about all the creative challenges that entails. I can only imagine. Well, I appreciate that. It's, I, I, I consider writers to be a special kind of introvert that we um, work alone. We aren't obviously doing what we're doing. We could be sitting at our desk, you know, browsing the internet or shopping or whatever, but we're in our own fictional worlds, in our own heads, the majority of the time. And um, there's nothing more daunting to most writers than to say, hey, let's go to a conference together, you know, because we just don't want to be together that way. We don't talk about things like that in that manner. So, um, yeah, we're, we're a special kind of, kind of breed, I think, that um, have some, some interesting challenges that way. Well, we read your bio on your website, and that's where we learned that you started in an early age to entertain yourself. What? How did you entertain yourself by writing? Like, what was it about writing that made you content as a youth? I had a um, a ritual, kind of a Saturday morning ritual when I was young. Um, Saturday was the day my family we would get up and have breakfast, and then we'd clean the house and we'd do what we had to do, and then we could go do what we wanted to do. Well, I would wake up 
before dawn on a Saturday and I would pull a book off my shelf and read it. And I would read the entire thing by the time anybody else got up. So by the time I was eight, nine, 10 years old, I was doing that on a regular basis. Um, and one day I was like, I've read everything. I hadn't gone to the library. I hadn't been to the bookstore. I didn't have anything new. And I didn't really want to read anything else I had on the shelf, reread anything. Um, so I thought, you know what? Why can't I do that? Why can't I write a book? Why can't I write a story that would entertain me? And so at 10 years old, there I am with a pencil and a piece of paper starting my first story. I have to admit, my my Saturday morning routine was Bugs Bunny. So Valid. <laughs> Valid. <laughs> yeah. And cereal. Yeah, 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 bowl yeah. of cereal, bowl of cereal and, and Bugs Bunny. Bunny. Yeah, yeah sure. that, that's pretty much what got me through Saturday mornings. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. There's a little Bugs Bunny thrown in there. Oh, good. I, sh- I hope so. Yeah. Where did it go from there? I mean, at some point, I imagine like all creative professionals, you put it down, picked it back up, put it down, picked it back up. But somehow through all of that, um, it persisted. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those things that once you start start doing it it's a little addictive you you know you spend time with these worlds and people that you create and they can be whoever you want them to be and they can do whatever you want them to do you have total control in your world which you know is is kind of fun um so i would i would do it you know to entertain myself whenever i had free time whenever school wasn't too pressing um i guess the first time i took it super seriously was when i was a junior in high school and I was in an AP English class that was terrible. I loved the teacher, but we just read a bunch of literature and, you know, barfed it back and that kind of thing. And I had a notebook that I kept with me and I kept, I would put my head down and write every day in his class. And I thought by the end of the semester, by the end of the year, I'm going to have a completed story. I still have that notebook somewhere and I will never, ever show it to anyone because it was, you know, it's terrible. But um but yeah, that's the first time I took it seriously. And then, of course, college comes and you're writing papers and you're, you know, and I wasn't an English major. I didn't write creatively in college for, you know, credit or anything like that. Um, I was a history major. So read a lot of papers, did a lot of research, and I didn't really get into it again until I got out of college and had some free time to devote to it and thought, you know, let's just go back to this. Cause this was entertaining for me. I would be, you know, maybe in a new city when I moved uh, to Detroit to, to start a new job, then I would you know, hadn't met people. So I'd have free time to go do it. And that would be what I'd do. How did your genre change from 10? Like, was it always kind of <laughs> fiction? Like you went from 10 writing what kind of stuff to, college writing what kind of stuff oh gosh and and when I was 10 it was it was all soap opera stuff you know my mom would watch the CBS series soap operas and so those would kind of be on so they always kind of had this romantic element to it but they were tragic also I mean anything that could go wrong did go wrong Um, I mean in one story too and at some point you realize you can't have all the crap in one story you can't you just can't do that Um, so you know eventually you pare it down Um, and it was it was I had a hard time transitioning to romance. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie about it. I didn't read a lot of romance growing up. My mom didn't have it laying around the house and, you know, we didn't do that. So when I started thinking about actually getting published, I thought, well, where? One of the things about the romance genre is that it centers on the romantic relationship and it has a happily ever after. Okay. It has to have a happy ending. 
So those are like rules. Those are hard and fast <laughs> rules for a romance. And uh, yeah, we can talk more about that later. But yeah, there are rules. So and I thought, well, I guess I have to give it a shot. So that was my me kind of transitioning was like uh, throwing my hands up. I'll give it a shot. And it wasn't as terrible as one might think. <laughs> one might think, um, and that's that's kind of how I ended up in romance, romance landia, as they call it. Did you do a lot of reading of romance novels before you uh, applied for citizenship in romance landia? <laughs> um, I read a few, yeah, and you know, I grew up in in a, a religious family, went to church all the time, and I thought, well, you know, maybe Christian romance is the thing for me quickly found out it was not. It just wasn't realistic enough to me, which sounds odd, I know, um, but it just wasn't the place for me. So I would read in the different subgenre and try to find the, the right relationship um, in, in that, in romance, because I loved history. That seemed to be a good fit, and that's really where I started. I read a lot of books in high school, just novels, and I wasn't really aware of different genres I was aware primarily of Stephen King. Fortunately, by the time I discovered Stephen King, he had a large enough back catalog that I could go back and read those early, you know, novels and then read the newer things as they came out. And I remember finding out about Ken Follett and something called historical fiction. And I thought, historical fiction, what is this? And I didn't quite understand it because it's they're writing about things that happened in the past which is history but they're making up stories that took that took place and it took me a few books which I love the, the instant I read them it took me a few books to understand okay this is what historical fiction is and I think that's when I sort of became aware of subgenres and how you can have a story that is just you know when you think of the characters in it and the actions in it it can apply at any time and place. It could be another planet or it could be a thousand years in the future or 2000 years in the past. And it, all the elements to the storytelling were similar or the same actually even. And how they differentiated themselves depended on the author's ability to paint the picture of the environment, the relationships, the details of of the story and not just the plot points. And so doing that in the written word, again, it just, for me, it seemed um, like too much work, <laughs> but I wasn't, I didn't enjoy writing the way you did. Sure. And I'm a huge fan of historical fiction as well. Um, that's my preferred reading material. If, you know, if I've got to, if I've got time to sit down and read, um, but yeah, they, what did they say? There's only seven plots in, in the whole world and, and it's just about how you use them. And so you and I aren't going to write the same book, even if we're given the same cast of characters in the same situation, it's going to be a completely different story. Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back again. You know, that could be King Kong, right? Or that could be um, Diary of a Vampire. It's, mm -hmm. You know, it's two completely different things. Right. Chris and I were talking this morning about your work and, and writing stories, especially writing lots of stories. And I imagine every author goes through this is you sit down and you realize, okay, I'm going to write another a book. 
it has to be different than the last one and the one before that. And, and actually it has to be different than every one I've written prior. And it has to be compelling and interesting. How do you, or maybe the better question is, what's the biggest creative challenge that you face at the beginning? Because creative challenges come one right after the other when you're doing something like this. But you get started, you know, how do you work around that? Well, the beginning to me is the most exciting part. That's the part that I can sit down and do. I've got a good idea in my head. I'm a character-driven author, so I'll have characters, and mostly I need to find a story to put them in instead of having a plot and then having to create characters to carry the plot. Um, so I, I've got this set of characters in my head, and when I finally do get that idea of, of what to put them in to carry them through the plot I have in mind, then um, then that's the start is never the problem for me. The, the middle is the problem for me. They don't call it the sagging middle for nothing. Um, and there's, you know, there's several kinds of writers. So there's people who write by the seat of their pants, right? That's a pantser. And, um, and then there's a plotter, someone who plots out the entire thing and goes methodically through it. And I'm kind of both. I've started out as a pantser and I wrote myself into several corners on several, I call them false starts. You know, I had great characters, decent plot in mind, and I would just write myself into a corner and then I would move on to the next idea. And that produced for me a catalog of about 20 story ideas that in varying stages of completion. And at some point I said to myself, I've got to learn how to plot just a little bit or else I'm never going to figure this whole thing out. And I'm just going to do this until I die. (laughs) So I I started to learn and um, started to read some craft books and learn how to, you know, especially romance has a a certain um, sequence of events to it that I didn't necessarily know when I started. Um, So I've learned quite a bit the past few years, especially trying to trying to get all of these stories off my hard drive and into reality. Um, And so I I call myself a a plotzer right now where I plot two or three chapters ahead so I get a good directional sense of where I'm going. I know what the ending is. um, And and then as long as I keep ahead of myself, I can make good progress. We've been comparing what you do to, and uh, it's not really to what we do because we're not writers, but screenwriting, screenplay writing. And one thing I was just realizing that's really different is you can write about a plane crashing into the lake and, you know, you can do all these crazy things that when we're writing, we have to be thinking about, can we actually pull that off? Can we make that visual? And you have the luxury of being able to write whatever you want. No one's ever going to make a movie of it unless they do. Right. Right. But it's, I must be liberating to be able to write whatever you want without the the baggage of, can I really wreck that train into Grand Central Station? You know what I mean? Yeah, I never really thought about it like that, but that's true. That is true. And, you know, I know a few screenwriters and um, I haven't tried screenwriting myself. It's one of those things I haven't, I just haven't tried yet. I think kind of for the same reason. When, when I visualize a story in my head, it looks like a movie to me. I, I have characters developed that I know what they look like. I know where they're at. I know what the room looks like and the city looks like and, and the whole nine. Um, I don't know that I can trim that back for a script and let somebody else interpret it for me. I, th- I think that would be difficult. I guess that's where I was going to go next is that with character development on a script, you, you have to leave a lot to the imagination of the producer and director, whereas you can be a lot more descriptive 
in a, in a fictional novel and you can spend more time describing the person and who they really are. It, it seems to happen a lot faster in a script and a lot less with a lot less detail. Yeah. And there's a couple of points there in a, in a script. Uh, uh, and when you give it to an actor to portray there, you know, you're, you're showing, you're not telling, they have to demonstrate who that person is so that you could visually see it and hear it. Um, with a novel, you can describe, now they tell you not to, not to show things or, or to show and not, not tell. Um, but there's some telling involved, you know, you tell what the scene looks like, you tell where they're at. Um, so there's, it's a whole different variety of things that you can, can describe. Um, depending on how, what point of view you're, you, you are using also. So you want to, in romance, there's typically two. You have your, your heroine, your female character, and then you have your hero, which is your, your male lead. You may also have some kind of antagonist or villain, depending on your subgenre. Um, and so I have to go into each of their points of view and write from, you know, the female's point of view and then from the male's point of view. So... You know, there's a certain amount of research that goes in with that. There, my husband gets a lot of really interesting questions from me. Research, yes, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, and and even though other writer friends that you have, maybe you guys don't get together and talk shop much, but sometimes it's helpful to know because you know they have the same same questions, same problems, same issues they're dealing with. It's helpful to know how other people approach at least approach it. Even right. if they're not, you know, doing it, even if that's not their ultimate solution. But I mean, I don't know where I would be if I didn't have fellow photographers, filmmakers, um, to talk about what we do to get ideas. Because as you know, we've talked about on this podcast many times, the just the constant need for new ideas not all of them are going to stick indeed most of them are just going to you know disintegrate into nothing but sure. but if you play, if it's a numbers game and you get a thousand new ideas and thoughts and combinations of things you're going to get one or two or five or six that stick you know and those become um, the kernel of something really good and something really complete which i think is the more exciting thing do you ever ask creatives in other disciplines? Do you ever quiz them um, just to get a different take? Like this is already for me, this conversation is super interesting talking to someone. I don't consider myself a writer of any kind. And although Chris and I have written some small, you know, pieces for, for filming, we've written a couple of short films and we wrote um, Chris is working on a screenplay and we have ideas for other screenplays, but talking to you about what you do, fascinating and thinking about, hmm, is there something there for me, you know, when it comes to screenwriting, do you talk to other people, photographers, musicians about the creative part? I do. I enjoy being around other creative people, regardless of what they're doing. I was in I've been in creative education for 20 years and enjoy the students very much, enjoy the environment very much, the other instructors and the whole, you know, the whole gamut of things that are, that are out there. Um, I had a student uh, turn in and um, we do free writes in my class. So our free write last week was to tell me something you're passionate about. And this particular student said that 
she understands that not everybody has an imagination like hers. And she went on to describe how she, her imagination is on 24-7. She can be sitting there, but she's imagining a story about the girl sitting next to her. And she's, you know, seeing something coming in the door and ruining the class or, or whatever the case may be. But it's, she's like, it's just on all the time. And she said, sometimes it's exhausting, but I know I don't want it to go away. You know, and I, and I think for those reasons, I, that's why I like to talk to creative people. My mother um, is a fine artist and she most recently got her degree at 76 and that was in creative writing. So um, and she writes poetry. So, you know, I've always kind of been around it in the house um, growing up, all the art books and the diagrams and, and all of those things. So it was natural to me to be around it in a work environment, even though I didn't at the time consider myself creative necessarily in the same way or even creative at all at that point. I I don't know why I didn't consider what I do creative. I think because you couldn't see me physically doing it. You know, when I think about what you do, Mark, I, I know I can watch you take a photo and set it up and light it correctly and edit it on the back end. And I can see the outcome at the end of the day and I can physically see you do that. You know, and, and, you know, this morning you guys were out there, you know, scouting, scouting locations and that's a physical journey that you go on and you know what you want to put where and how you want it to look. Um, but again, just sitting at your desk and, you know, trying to force the characters and the things out of your brain onto a computer screen or a piece of paper did not seem to be, for whatever reason, in the same vein to me for a long time. You're right in that we have to have something to play against, to play off of. The scene, the person, um, the limitations of our medium, um, whatever it is, we, we have parameters that we have to fit our creativity in, inside of. And much of, the, much of us creating is simply solving problems and figuring out how to deal with the parameters and the limitations of what we have to do. I never thought about it before, but that's kind of liberating those parameters and those limits kind of go, okay, I don't have to think about the 200 billion other possible things because none of those things would work anyway. I can only focus on a limited number of things that would actually help me solve this problem compared to you. Got you, all the solutions in the world. <laughs> yeah, it's, you're much more like a painter in that you can make it look any way you want it to look on the canvas. You create something from nothing. And I create, and Chris and I create something from something else. It's already something, but we're trying to make it look a little bit different. So we're not starting from scratch mm-hmm. like you are. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I don't know why I had that block in my head where I just didn't think it was creative. I would go to the portfolio shows and see all these amazing things the the students would produce and, and just be blown away by it and encouraged by it, you know, and it would make me feel creative myself. And I, then I would go, right, but it never occurred to me that it was in the, you know, in the same arena at all. When did you guys feel like you were creative? Chris, when did you first sort of admit to yourself or – start to think of yourself as a creative person. It was probably well after I got my business degree. Well, I mean, 
that's not necessarily true. I was taking photography while getting my business degree. So I was enjoying exercising my right brain while college was shoving my left brain full of stuff that I didn't think I was really going to ever use. (laughs) But I would say in college is when I realized that I was probably being creative in the things things that I was doing. And that, that kind of manifested itself in uh, taking photography classes. And um, the, the teacher that I had at the time was kind of a temporary teacher while my other professor was on sabbatical. And I ended up not really doing the kind of work that he wanted us to do. He was very much into like dirty dolls in the backyard and poverty and kind of and I just, I just d- didn't turn me on. So I was able to kind of do what I wanted and he didn't get what I did and I didn't get what he did and we didn't get along, but I got to kind of get off the reservation for a minute and do what I wanted, right. which was nice. Did you get what you did? Um, to me, it was kind of a workout. It was, it was exercise for me. I was exploring new things. I didn't know where it was going to lead until I got a job in a photography studio. And then I realized, oh, that's what that's all about. Yeah, what it can be. Yeah. I I was kind of going down that road before I realized that's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And then I saw it for the first time in, in, in practice. And that's when I realized, oh, that's commercial work. Okay. I get that. Yeah. How about you? Yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> Still waiting. <laughs> well, you know, um, when I was young and I I was interested in lots of different things. I studied piano for a while and I played competitive sports for a long time. Even even into my forties and early fifties, I played competitive competitive sports and I I could recognize athletes who were creative in what they did on the field, but I would never associate them with a creative professional. I would, I didn't recognize the the creativity, you know, I wouldn't say, wow, you're super creative. I would say you're really good at soccer or you're a really good basketball player. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Or you can really shoot well. Right. Um, And, and I read a lot of comic books and I like to draw and my parents would say, well, you're really, you can draw really well or, that's really interesting or whatever. So I got a lot of positive uh, feedback and affirmation, but I never really thought of it as being creative. And even, even into college, I, I didn't think that I was, that it was, that I was going to be a creative person. I didn't know that you could be a creative person. And I, and I have a degree in drama and I, I loved being behind the scenes in the theater and doing the sets and the lights and the costumes even. And, and I saw all of the creativity that happened there. And that was probably the closest that I ever got to it. And then when I realized that I loved photography and that I had a knack for it, I think it was easy to go off in that direction. But even then, it was learning. It was technique-based. It was about, like you were describing, Marty, you could watch a photographer set up the lights, work with the model, get the lighting just right, the exposure just right and everything. A lot of that is just technique, is good, solid technique so that you don't make mistakes that yield a bad picture. But being truly creative and involves getting away from the technique in a way that is unexpected 
and allows you to express something that's unique to you. And I don't, I, I honestly, I would say it's been in the last five or six years that I feel like I am figuring out how to make photos in a way that reflects how I think about the world. Up until then, it's solid technique. Technique can take you really far. When you watched, when you watched the photographer in the studio and you learned about commercial photography, you're like, I mean, so much of that is just technique. You know, the light goes here. You make sure that you're, you have this much focus and you can see the product and the white balance is correct. That's just technique. What's the difference? But what's the difference between technique and skill? Yes. I think, I think a lot of times it's the same. Okay. I think a lot of times it's the same. I took a drawing class in college, not a painting class, a drawing class. And my teacher said, drawing is a skill. Anybody can learn to draw. Anybody can learn to draw a perfect circle, perfect square. Anyone can learn to draw what is in front of them in a photograph or what is in front of them in real life because you're just copying what you see, right? Painting is different. Painting has emotion and painting has a narrative. And, and that's when I sort of started to realize the difference between like how far technique could take you. Yeah. I think technique is, is a huge part of skill. I think skill then incorporates your own personal interpretation and influence on what the outcome is. I guess the question is, would you rather be skilled or would you rather have a, have I'm not sure. Would you rather be an excellent technician or would you rather be skilled? I think of those two as the same. I don't. How do you differentiate it? I think you can have skill without having been taught. And technique, I I feel like technique is taught. Would you consider the way you're describing it, would you say that, that skill and talent are more similar then? Yes. Okay. So, um, I would say that talent is the raw part. The, instinct, the intuition, um, the, I don't know why I'm doing it this way, but it just seems like I should do it this way. And then, um, and I think if you're talented and then you apply technique to it, then I think you have something, but someone who isn't talented, I think can still learn the skill Mm -hmm. of doing that. Well, they call you, they would call you naive, right? Right. If you have skill and natural sort of born skill at a certain thing, but you don't have technique, then you, it comes across as being somewhat naive. And that's what kind of how they would, I think that's how they would call your work. And you mean raw. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have your, your skill hasn't been to school. Right. Yeah. And I, I guess I think of that as talent Yeah, and, and skill is something that you can be taught. This is how you hold a knife and fork. More of a verb. Yes. Yes. It's more of a verb. And, um, and like in sports in basketball, for instance, if you can dribble between your legs and, you know, um, keep a ball bouncing to keep your dribble alive to me, that's a skill, right? But turning that into a one-on-one move that leaves a defender helpless on the floor behind you, that is creativity and just talent that can't be taught, you know? So I think that's kind of where you're, where those 
for me, that's how I differentiate between those. Marty, when did you allow yourself to think that you were creative? Probably within the last five or six years. When, you know, I've always known, like by the time I was out of high school, I was like, okay, I'm a good writer. Like technically, I, I, I got good grades. They had good things to say about the things I wrote. I knew like academically, this was something that I was good at. I knew I liked to write little stories. They were entertaining to me and that's kind of all the further it went. Um, I got into a critique group online where everything went through online and never met it. Well, that's not true. I met one of those people in person uh, at a conference one time, um, but we would just trade trade uh, reviews and critiques of our chapters one after the other and getting that feedback and learning the rules and the tricks of the trade so you can break them later and that's what they say learn the rules and then you can break them um, was invaluable and you know that that group ran its course and, and eventually disbanded and only recently have I gotten back into a a writer's group online that I feel comfortable with. Um, and we talk more about uh, setting goals, meeting goals, um, the business of writing, which is another daunting topic, um, and, and those types of things. We don't trade work as much because we're at to the point where we know what we're producing is valid, is good, is marketable. And so we're, we're headed into publication, but we want to support each other in other ways. You'd mentioned earlier the word work. And we've talked a lot, just, you know, off air. I'm not sure if we've even talked about this on the podcast yet. But we've talked about um, when you turn the thing that you love doing into work, that sometimes it kind of takes the fun out of the thing that you initially began doing because it was fun. Has that happened to you or do, are you still, because you started off writing for fun and now you're writing for work. Right. It's, it's a balancing act. Um, I, I got laid off from my education job about six, seven years ago and I opened up a small little media company and I started doing, creating websites for people and, you know, brochures and, and using words as marketing instead of, you know, creative, creative writing. Um, and so that's a little bit harder for me is to put that into a box and not, you know, blather on about this, that, and the other thing um, when I'm doing that type of, of copywriting. Um, and yes, there, there, it's a balancing act when it becomes, I don't want to say mundane, but when you push yourself so hard that it is no longer fun, I, I don't want to do it anymore. And that's, there's a point at which that happens. And that happened to me earlier this year. There's a a series that I wrote about 15 years ago, a three book series that I have on my hard drive. And I thought those ones are next. I'm going to do those next. And those were award-winning stories. They won uh, Romance Writers of America awards. And so I thought, well, this should be easy. Well, now I've learned so much that the first one needs a total rewrite and I'm neck deep in it. And I just hate it. I'm hating every moment of this project for whatever reason probably because I'm not able to transform it from what I wanted it to be 15 years ago to what I want it to be now. And it's going to be a multi-edit step to get it there. It's not going to take one draft or two drafts. It's going to probably take five or six. 
to get really where I want it to be. And it's drudgery. It really is. So making myself sit down to do that is still something that has to happen. Um, but then I have to have a reward after that. I'm, I'm big on the reward system. So, you know, if I have to sit down and finish this chapter in this rewrite, then at the end of it, I'm going to be able to reward myself by working on something I just started, a brand new idea. And, you know, I'll do it. I'll do a few pages of that. And that's more fun. I, I've always worked well in the reward system. I don't know. A lot of people don't, but that works for me. I mean, I can say that the thing that I started doing for fun, there are times when it's not when it's not fun necessarily. And I mean, I'd still rather be doing that than actually oh, yeah. working. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not like you, you can't complain about doing the thing that you really enjoy doing, even if it's like they say your worst day, you know, Correct. <laughs> it's still, you're still okay. Correct. I'm still doing it. So. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. But sometimes you look back and you think I really did it just because I used, I used to walk around with a camera and look for and find interesting just compositions and faces and just stuff, walk around photography. And then after a while, I didn't relish the idea of packing a camera because that's what I do for a living. <laughs> I, I, I pack and I go and I shoot and I unpack and I pack and I go home and I pack. And I just had no interest in, I think if I was to go to Europe right now, I would just take my cell phone. Like I wouldn't even take a camera. And that's idiotic, right? I mean, <laughs> well, I don't know. I know another photographer, he was going to Scandinavia. That was his wife's pick for vacation that year. And they were going to Scandinavia. He's like, I can't do it. I can't take all that crap with me. Yeah. It's like, I, I should, but I can't make myself do it. I rationalized buying a really good point and shoot that I could stick in my back pocket and carry around wherever I went. And then, and we've talked about this too, the difference between making photographs and taking pictures. Uh, I would yeah. just take pictures just because it was, you know, just document the moment. No, sure. no, no biggie, no pressure, but I make photographs for clients. Right. Well, that's another difference I think between what we do and what we, and what you do is there's a, uh, a myth, a, a common myth that all photographers believe at one point in their career. And then they realize it isn't true. And then somehow later they find themselves believing it again. And that belief is that the gear that you have is going to unlock some sort of creativity or some, some sort of missing, I don't know, element to your work. And that if you only had this piece of equipment, it's going to take you to stratospheric levels of creativity. I'm guilty right? of that. We're all guilty of all of it. We fall, we start to believe that myth, and then we realize that it has, it has nothing to do. The minute we take an amazing photo with our phone, we're like, wait a minute, I don't need that camera, lens, light, whatever it is. But you don't, you don't have that because you're. That's a limitation, and actually, it's a, it's, it's, it's quite an a annoying red herring for us because it leads us down this trail of thinking something that's completely untrue. There is none of that for you. You need a pencil and a piece of paper or something to write on and a way to get those thoughts and ideas out of your head and down onto something about, tangible. <laughs> maybe the only similarity is that we're both putting our work onto a two dimensional piece of paper yeah. Right. You're taking a fully realized three-dimensional world in your head 
that's rich and expansive and you're reducing it to words on a page that when they are read by the reader unlocks the same expansive, amazing universe in their head, right? That's the point of transfer. And we have to do the same. We have to make our movie. We have to make our photo the same way. It has to go through the lens, smash up against the sensor in our camera, and then be translated from pixels on a sensor into ink on a page so that when someone looks at it, it can convey to them everything that it conveyed to us the moment that we captured it. Yeah, but I feel like I would still not start writing because I didn't have the right number two pencil. You know what I mean? (laughs) Well, we all have like boxes full of empty journals that we keep, you know, just around because we like them, not because we're ever going to write in them. Right. I've got a bunch of blank ones over sitting right over there. (laughs) It's it's like a rite of passage. Right. I have two questions for you and I'm I'm going to have to jot down one of them because I'm going to forget it. So I'm going to borrow that pen. What does your, what does a creative block, I'm making air quotes here. What does a creative block look like for you? How does it, what causes it? How do you know when you're in it? You know, what's that like? A creative block for me, I don't have writer's block per se, the way some writers do. Um, a creative block for me is more of a, a boundary. I call it my box. I, I have boundaries and it might be based on my experience or my knowledge or, you know, some combination of the two, but I want the idea in my head to be bigger than it is and better than it is. And whatever I've got in the way of that, um, is not allowing me to do that. And that's where other creative people come in handy for me because I'll talk to somebody about it. You know, how do I make this what I want it to be? Well, what is it? And you walk somebody through the idea. Well, could it be this happen? Or could that character do this, that, or the other thing? Could you introduce another character that would carry this scene? You know, and those are things that you're like, man, why didn't I think of that? You know, what is... What is the blinder that I can't see around that to get to that point? Um, and that's more the creative kind of blocks that I have. It's not that I can't sit down and put words on the page. That's really knockwood never happened to me. Um, but it's more that I get in my own way in that I can't see I, what I consider wide enough to be as creative and to bring the bigness of the idea I have home. And that's probably the problem I'm having right now with this story that I'm working on. It's just what I wanted it to be 15 years ago was more of a, a, an underlying theme of good versus evil, which is universal. And then um, on top of that, a religious idea of um, predestination um, versus free will. And, what I thought about that 15 years ago is completely different from what I think about it now. And so I'm having a really hard time getting that, that out of my own way. I'm a, I'm a victim of that too. I, you, you see something a certain way the first time. And then even though someone gives you the solution, you have a hard time getting out of your own previous understanding of the situation. Right. It's almost like I need to give myself permission to do that. It's, it's the weirdest thing, but I call it being in my box. So I'll ask my class, you know, how many of you have a box and half of them will raise their hand. And the other half don't still don't know what you mean. Right. Yeah. You said 15 years ago, what 
what appealed to you or what you were thinking 15 years ago is not the same as what it appeals to you today. And this idea that like we're the same person, but when I started as a photographer, I was only capable of imagining and seeing things a certain way because I hadn't had the experience and I hadn't learned all of the possibilities hadn't learned how to think about it. And that includes, I hadn't learned how I hadn't learned who I was. It seems like through our careers, we are different, create different, like I'm a different photographer. Five years after I started, I was a different photographer. 10 years after that, I was a different photographer. And Chris and I talked last episode about different phases we've been through, but I never feel like I, know how to be the best photographer that I am at that time, at that time. Like I always think, oh, if I had done this 10 years ago, that would have made that so much better. So do you ever feel like, in a sense, we're chasing ourselves, we become a different photographer and then we have, or a writer, then we have to learn how to be that writer at that age. And by the time we figure out how to be that writer at that age, we're no longer that age and we're a different age and we're a different writer. So it's like we chase ourselves through our whole life. Do you ever feel like you catch up? No. (laughs) I don't either. No. The interesting thing about, though, being at this stage in my career, an indie writer, which means I I publish things directly. I don't go through a publisher. um, Is that I can go back and change things that I've written. I can update an edition. I I got rights back to the first book I ever published with a traditional publisher and I added a hundred pages to it before I published it again. It was, it wasn't that it was that bad. It told the story well enough, but it could be better. So I gave myself license to make it better. And that's kind of the interesting point I'm at now is that, yes, I can go back and take that stuff that I've already published and pull it back and say, okay, now I, I know better and I can do better. Um, so that's, that's something I think writers can do that um, that a lot of artists can't. You can't go back and undo that painting. You can't go back and take that fo- that same exact photograph again. My other question was, and this is something that Dr. Twiggs illustrated brilliantly for us when we were speaking with him. My question is, do you feel like you have a voice? Like, do you feel like people read your books and they say, that's an M.K. Chester book? Chris and I have talked about this and Chris has said he doesn't feel like he has a voice or a look or a style. And I think each, I think every artist feels like they don't yet people who are on the outside looking in go, Oh yes, you absolutely do. Are, do you feel like you do? Do you feel like you can, you know what it is? I, I feel like I do. I don't know that I could articulate exactly what it is. Um, I write 20th century American historicals. So like prohibition, world war one, world war two, that arena of history. Um, and I, I grew up hearing stories about my family and that's where I get a lot of my ideas from, um, for, for those books set in those times. And that voice, when I, when I write in those time periods, that voice comes to me super easy just because I grew up hearing it. Um, the contemporary ones that I write is a little bit different. Um, I've written a lot of academic work, so I have to, I don't want to say dumb it down, but there's a, a different style for academic writing. And, and 
when you stop to realize that most readers uh, on average are at a sixth or seventh grade level, you know, you want to make sure that you are reaching as many people as possible. Um, so I have a, a tendency to go overboard with giant words and, you know, elusive meanings and things only I understand and <laughs> that kind of stuff. So I have to go back in and kind of kind of remove all that a little bit uh, when I'm writing something in uh, the current time period. But the historicals, for sure, I have a voice in that. Teaching presents its own set of problems that you, you, you can't imagine some of the problems that you have to solve as a teacher. And how has being a creative professional helped you in that arena? Um, how does it allow you to perhaps think differently so that you can continue with your lesson plan or continue with the goal of the class and still be able to bring the students along with you? I don't know if it's any different for any other teacher, but what I tend to do, and you know as well as anybody else, those students will tell you anything. So you just never know what's going what's gonna to come up. Um, you know, it's just to make them feel heard because that's what I would want. What would I want if I was telling somebody something like this? I would want some grace. I would want to be feel like I was heard. I would want maybe some possible solutions if that's what I was looking for. Um, I would want to know that I wasn't going to, you know, fail my class. Some reassurance, you know, um, some idea that they're on the right track. Um, I, I tend to look at it like, what what would I want to hear? And as an introvert, and, and on my Myers-Briggs test, I was so far on the introvert side, they told me to be an archive librarian so I would not have to talk to human beings. <laughs> I kid you not. And then I went and got a job as a salesperson because it pissed me off. Um, the hell I won't. The hell I won't, right. <laughs> and so, you know, but but as an introvert, you know, I tend to be able to pause and think about those things before I speak, <laughs> thankfully. Um, so that's that's been one of those things that, that I get good feedback on is that, yeah, she really listened to me. Yeah, I really felt like she understood what I was trying to say or do, you know, and, encur- and encourage them more than anything else. So this question I'm about, about to ask probably does not belong here. So we may need to put it somewhere else. Do you do any commission work? I mean, does, or would that sort of take away some of the pleasure in generating your own kind of outline? I have actually, I've done some ghostwriting um, <laughs> for a financial client. Um, so it was nonfiction. It was about financial markets and this, that, and the other thing that, you know, my husband has a background in that, so I'm around it quite a bit. And he had a good outline, so filling in the blanks wasn't wasn't too, too difficult. I would have to say, depends on what they're paying me. Depends on what they're paying me to do. Um, as far as fiction goes, I probably would not. It would be really hard to separate what I would want to do with a fiction project as opposed to what a client would want me to do with a fiction product project. Um, copywriting is not so much, it's not hard to, not hard to do that, but yeah, I don't think I could do that for fiction. I have a, another question about the classroom. It seems to me that you would be good at getting inside the head of other people, even though these students are, you know, one, one and a half, sometimes even two generations removed from us, 
being able to imagine the other perspective, I would think would be a huge help in the very real world where you're trying to um, connect with someone and achieve a goal and help, help them achieve a goal also. Are you able to think of it like that or is it just, do you just become the frustrated teacher? No, I, I still get frustrated with stuff like that because I know that they're entirely capable of doing it. I don't know if because of the way I structure my class that they feel like it's not as important as it should be or they feel like I teach copywriting. So if they feel that the course itself is not as valid as their visual art classes, um, I don't know. I don't know. For me, the hardest part of teaching the class is actually keeping my energy up for, for that long. Um, but I, I have a, you know, a son that's 21. It's not hard to get into their heads. Um, they, they all want the same things that we wanted back when we were that young, if we can just remember it. <laughs> yeah. So far, so long ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You said that when you write, you think of it as a movie. I mean, that's obviously because we've grown up on movies and TV and our world is largely a visual world. When we're not looking at the world in real life, we're looking at pictures and moving pictures of the world. Can you imagine what it was like for authors in the 1700s, 1800s, early 1900s before moving pictures and before color photography and before all of that was available, they had to truly, if they weren't able to go to the places that they wanted to write about to do that research, how did they do that? That's a, that to me is remarkable. It, it really is remarkable because now, you know, I mean, no writer wants to have their browser history exposed, you know, Right, so we'll we'll see ten different ways to torture and kill people, or whatever the case may be. Um, and you can just look up anything you want, um, or you can see any location you want. Um, yeah, I don't, I I can't imagine trying to do that. I can't imagine trying to write. And I I have written longhand. I I don't do it anymore because my hands can't keep up with my brain. Trying to use a, a, a manual typewriter. I have one that works now, thanks to a friend. Um, so I might give that a shot. That sounds interesting. Um, but I can't imagine trying to just dig all that out. Like what Mary Shelley was thinking when she made, wrote Frankenstein, you know, how, how, but the, the power of the imagination, that's how she could, she could dream it. She could write it down. Do you ever think that hundreds of years from now, they'll be reading your work and they'll be wondering, how did she come up with these ideas? Where did this come from or does it do you ever try to imagine what will be what people will think of your work in the future as they you know discover it I honestly can say I hadn't considered that um but I I, I hope I hope so I hope that my ideas are are big enough and strong enough to remain around and be interesting to future generations I, mean, that, I think that would be amazing I mean you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're all, we're all going to leave the earth and, and what, what we have done creatively is what we're going to have, what's going to be left behind, you know? And so my kids will have that and their kids will have that. And anybody who wants to pick up the book will have that. 
Um, so it's nice to kind of know that something of a legacy is out there that you'll leave. Um, a lot of people don't have that, and a lot of people worry about that. You know, what do they leave behind? So we have some some cr- very creative things to leave behind. It's a good reason also, I think, to try and put as much of yourself into your work yes. as possible. Yes, definitely. Definitely. There's nothing I've done that there's – people ask that all the time. Is this is this you in this book? I'm like, I'm in every book. I'm in every book. You know, and yes, I create characters. And no, you can't assume that whatever they do is things that I have done because um, that's not true. But yeah, there's – I'm in every single book. You can't separate it out. You can't. Marty, I want to thank you so much for, for being with us. Um, and we also want to thank our sponsor, NOSI College of Art, for helping make this possible. Uh, before we let you go, we wanted to ask you, as we do all of our guests, and we also participate in this, what's one thing that you're looking forward to? One thing I'm always looking forward to, I, uh, we became grandparents a couple years ago. And uh, grandbaby girl lives over in South Carolina, and we travel over there to see her every few months. So I'm looking forward to, to our next trip. So the thing I'm looking forward to probably the most is actually getting to work on our feature film. We've been in pre-production for what feels like forever and we're finally going to get back to shooting and um, we'll start next month and I just can't wait. That's exciting. Yeah. What do you think, Mark? The thing I'm looking forward to most right now has to do with our film, but it has to do with the sleep that I'm going to get on on October 16th, which is the, the, the day after we will have completed three night shoots in a row. I'm so looking forward to that night of sleep. You're already planning for your first night home. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, if you like this conversation with Marty, please consider subscribing to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Online, you can find us at penumbra-ent.com. That's also where you can find the show notes for this or any other episode. On Facebook and Instagram, we are Penumbra Films. We want to thank all of you who have found this show and are listening. We would love to hear from you. So please, if you have questions or comments for Chris or me, please send us an email at creativity at penumbra-ent.com. And just a quick shout out to our friend Steve Witsett in North Carolina, who did send us an email with some recommendations of future guests. We appreciate that. And anyone who has any thoughts or ideas for people that they would like to hear on this show, please do not hesitate to get in touch with us. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Creativity in Motion podcast. Until then, don't forget to step out of your own box once in a while.